Welcome to Brave New Earth. This podcast is all about climate tech. We're going to be diving into how we can build and invest in the climate technology projects of tomorrow. We're going to be interviewing some of the best founders, investors, scientists, and builders in the space to work out where we should be investing our capital, where we should be building businesses so that we can, one, have a huge impact on the future on planet Earth, and two, build very valuable businesses. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Harry. I'm really excited. Let's dive straight in. Frank, hello. G'day, Harry. How are you? Yeah, not bad. New yeah. beard. Sporting a new beard. New beard, man. I like it. Yeah, I rate it. Yeah. <laughs> you and I were very astute here in November. Yeah. Late November in London. Yeah. Guys, it got cold actually, hasn't Keeping it? Keeping us warm. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, uh, Frank, thanks so much for going on. I'm really, look, uh, really looking forward to this one. Um, obviously, as the audience know, I hope that you know by now, this podcast is all about building and or investing in climate tech uh, businesses that are both high-end impact and super valuable so you're an expert in the field so i can't wait to dig a dig a bit deeper into into what's been going on well it's look it's been fun i've been working in it since 2017 uh, since we started the first climate fund in australia um uh, under under the cultivate brand so it has been incredible like back then as well it was new it was still pretty early on it was still not that big yeah. now it's everything yeah exactly which that's one of the first questions I, I wanted to ask you is like how how this came around however i want to dive back into a bit of a story and 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 start first things first so obviously we're working together on, on brave new earth now which is really really exciting can't yeah. wait but how we were introduced in the first place is a story i think the audience will be very interested to hear so i, I had a, a a friend tell me about frank and he said um 2019 set up a business called equilibrium ai that's right 14 months which is a climate tech software play yeah uh 14 months later oh, well, it's about a, a a year and a half, so you year and a month, so yeah, 18, 18 months, months later, right. sold for 32 million. Yes, which blew my mind because this was still in the phase, this was still in the period of me, me kind of feeling out climate tech, you know, it, obviously a really high impact thing, but is it is it like a really valuable profit? And that was, was like, yes, obviously it is. If if because yeah. that, that's that's not a bad year's work, Frank, yeah, well, eight, eight <laughs> but uh, still pretty good, right? Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. amazing. I mean, it was just you know, we kind of hit the zeitgeist. It, it, we, we, so one of the things I always say, you know, when, when starting a business and Having done this several times beforehand with various degrees of success is it's all down to execution and research. Mm. Um, and this time, you know, I, so since 2017, having been involved in climate through a climate, food and agricultural fund, one of the things that we saw taking a step back with that fund was that this was out of Australia and we're investing in companies around the world, like early stage startups that are generally into deep techs from, from a climate perspective. That could be carbon carbon capture, um, you know, uh, reforestation, agriculture, like food, deep food tech, regenerative agriculture, et cetera. So, but part, most, what is really interesting is that the big corporates like Monsanto and all these kind of like big mining and agricultural dog, and they wanted to work with the startups, but they couldn't figure out how to get their data to the startups and the startups couldn't figure out how to get their data to, to, um, to the company. So, and it, what it became apparent when I looked into it is like most of these corporates were running huge amounts of like data around, you know, ESG, environmental, social and governance, literally using Excel. 
you know, they're using incredibly sophisticated systems for financial systems, but Excel and kind of consultants for a uh, for for what they were doing with all this other data. So, you know, it became apparent that there was a huge opportunity to help companies manage that. And and I figured, I felt that like as the environmental side of things became more and more important for companies, that their data and data management around that would become more and more critical. Reporting was going to get more onerous. Um, just like benchmarking, understanding where you are in the market, that was all becoming an company. It's like, you know, up to that point, companies were treating ESG or environmental stuff as kind of like CSR stuff. It was like some person, probably in marketing, who did a bit of stuff around, mostly guff around the, you know, yeah. the sustainability report. Like, yeah, you know, we kind of invested in a village or, you know, helped raise a few, ch- ch- you know, trees and stuff like that. And it was kind of like meaningless guff in the sustainability report that people just put in there as window dressing. But it was like becoming very apparent reasonably quickly, especially in January 2020 when we started. Microsoft said, look, we are going to hit net zero. We are going to have a very aggressive target to hit net zero across 2020, 2030. And we are going to drive very heavily down our supply chain to make sure our suppliers ensure that we hit these targets because not only do we have to do it in our own operations but we have to do it in our external operations and uh, and so that's that's where it became really interesting so like how companies were managing the data and managing their reporting etc and we just saw this big opportunity to, to go for it um, and we were just right in the middle of it but it, it really came down to understanding that enterprises look needed data startups were looking at data in, you know, investors were putting more pressure on the in, in, in uh, companies around data, and all of this was coming down to there's a need for an ESG data platform. How are we going to go build that? How are we going to look at carbon management? Just but wider ESG things, and we were right on the money. And it just it was one of the other things which I will say is say when you are doing a company is that you you research. So I took like six months off, yeah, and researched the sector. Who's in it? What's the competitors like? What's the scope? went around and talked to a lot of sustainability officers in companies and said, what do you need? What do you want? How much would you pay for it? it you know, and build up a very clear picture that this was a market with a massive need that was untapped and unmet. So I, I always think research is a key thing. And that's what we've been yeah. doing at Brave New Earth for the last you know, four or five months is, is research into like, how's the sector? What is this all about? Where are we going to go? And I, I fundamentally believe when you're doing a new business that you really got to do that. So in short, the, pl- the platform was one of the first real carbon data to allow allow companies to very trans- um, very visibly and ta- tangibly track where they were emitting stuff across the supply chain, across the whole business. Was there, was there a specific focus? or Yeah, so across the whole business and supply chain. There'd already been quite a lot of carbon platforms. Yeah. So we, we did carbon, but we were one of the first to add so much more onto carbon, like water, biodiversity, all the social metrics, governance metrics, as ESG became more and more important at that yeah. time. 2019, carbon was still the main thing that people were talking about, but we saw that there's going to be a lot more. There's going to be a lot more pressure on just such, so more, you know, like labour, governance, social, social metrics, like how are your suppliers behaving, how are they reporting? So we just saw that it was going to go beyond carbon, and that's really what the platform does. There are great, great, great carbon, you know, suppliers out there, carbon software suppliers out there, and we do that as well. But what we do even better is the carbon plus ESG part. I and mean, that was the kind of real insight into everything. So was that your secret source, the fact that everyone was just focusing narrowly on carbon, but you took a wider approach yeah. and said, actually, what's the whole holistic impact? Yeah. Awesome. And wh- right. who, who were the first, I mean, you have to name the names if you don't want to, but who were the first kind of companies to nibble on something like that? Bas- basically, what I'm trying to ask is who were the early adopters in uh, for climate 
for, the, for this kind of stuff. You know? Well, I mean, yeah. so big agricultural companies, manufacturers, yeah. um, supply logistics companies, like with complex supply chains and under regulatory pressure. So that's food, agriculture, shipping, logistics. A lot of that is under heavy regulatory pressure mm. to to report all the time. And so those were the guys that we specialised in, and it's, it was medium to large enterprise, not the smaller companies. It's it's in this case it's different because it's because it's ESG and carbon and the requirements driven heavily by large investors like BlackRock and Blackstone and regulatory uh, regulatory bodies. Then the pressure was on public companies and not smaller companies initially. Smaller companies became felt the pressure later on. As those big companies chased them, chased their suppliers on data, that's when the smaller private companies started feeling it. But initially, it was the public companies. It still is more and by and large. So, and what, mid to large enterprise. What was the pressure? Is it is it pressure from consumers? Is it pressure from governments? Is it both? What's more? The, the biggest pressure is from investors. Like investors, the, yeah, by far. Really? The biggest pressure has always been BlackRock, Blackstone, like the big, big KKR, the big, big investors, because they. You know, so, you know, they've seen this many, many times beforehand, like, you know, from the transition to digital when all companies were going digital during the early 2000s, like 50% of the global 500 dropped off the global 500, right? Disappeared. Companies like Kodak, et cetera, right? They just either disappeared or, or drifted away because they didn't man manage that transition to digital. Um, and that always happens in these big, huge inflections. And then the, the inflection to where everything becomes sustainable is exactly the same reflection and inflection point. And so BlackRock and Blackstone and these guys are very, very smart. They look at forward projections for the next 10 years and go, if you aren't sustainable, if you don't have a net zero, if you haven't decarbonized net zero target, if you haven't decarbonized, if you haven't sorted out your water biodiversity and social sector, you are going to be in an extremely difficult position by 2025, 2026. Um, because not only will the regulatory bodies and the government's having a huge pressure on you, consumers will have huge pressure on you, um, but just the financial pressure, like you will have left it too late to decarbonize and the expense of decarbonizing, because remember by that time, offsetting is almost certainly not an option. Like that is, you know, that will be a very small part of it. You'll actually have to do something and not just offset. So that's where that pressure has always come. And, and that's on all, everything to do with ESG carbon really is driven by investors first, then the regulatory bodies. And to a certain degree, consumers, but it's really those big, big public market investors that put the pressure on. Interesting. So I think that's a really interesting point that I want to kind of, I guess, just break down a level further. So what you're saying there is that these big, big investors of the of the bigger companies have managed billions and billions and billions, probably trillions in, in some cases, right? They saw that in the last wave of um, products, the last wave of business, which was digital, uh, the companies that didn't innovate fast enough were too, were were, were too slow. It was too slow for them to change down the line, and they basically got wiped wiped off the face That's of right. the Fortune 500. Yep. And now the the same big investors that predicted that wave are now Still focusing. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah. now focusing on sustainability and seeing that uh, if you don't become sustainable and decarbonize now, by the time it by crunch time in a couple of years then it's going to be too late for them to transition as well. So they're pushing their companies to do it now. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. It's exactly, that's where it yeah. comes. There were two big, I mean, 2019, 2020, there were two big, big trends that by and large investors were looking at for companies transition to. One was climate and sustainability because everything becomes sustainable and you have to make that transition. And the second one was Web3. Are you prepared for Web3? Now, Probably less pressure on, are you prepared for Web3 now? Yeah, after the last and few weeks. <laughs> after the last few weeks. And now climate is is just ramping up even more, right? So yeah. 
and and es es and g right so it is governance and social and you know and so many people were dismissing the governance side of es and g um in in recent times but but that is so important and i think you know one of the funniest <laughs> things about this whole uh, you know FTX. web3 debacle is that you know ftx had a big had a better esg rating than exxon mobile <laughs> you know a better like on governance on governance by one of the very top rating agencies gave them a better rating on governance and well clearly that was right. utter utter Rubbish. Rubbish. That's the nice way of saying that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just shows that these rating systems are utter bollocks. And so, you know, they're, they're not open, they're not transparent. And, you know, that's one of the things that was does, has been so interesting. And so now there is even more pressure to get underneath the hood on corporates and find out, you know, okay, yeah, just because you tell me that you're doing a good thing. Well, I'm going to go audit it. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to go really look at it, and that comes back to data again. So, if you're going to go audit it, then you're going to have to know where everything is and and track it and audit it. And that's what our equilibrium software was doing as well. So that was one part of the another part of the sort of thing that we did well was just be able to track that from a reporting perspective right down the chain. That that also helped a lot as well. That's fascinating. So, I mean, this is a topic um, which has been coming up more and more recently, right? Is that some of these ESG ratings are not quite hitting the mark with, and 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 this was really one of my big frustrations with ESG investing. I used to put all my money in these ESG tracker funds. Yeah. Later to find out that they weren't holding Tesla, but they were holding all the big oil companies because the governance was better. So someone as um, from someone that's actually set up a business in this space, right? What's going on? Why is that happening? And how do we fix it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's because the oil companies generally do have very good governance and they have <laughs> rating on it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like, I think there is a movement towards sorting a lot of this stuff out. It's all quite new, right? If you think about it, it's only the last three or four years that companies have really started having to do this and do reporting. I mean, some companies have been doing it for 10, 15 years, but they are the exception to the rule. So, but now, like, you know, 98% of the Fortune 500 are doing it. They have to report against all these big standards, SASB, TCFD, you know, GRI, and it's all new for them. And so, but it's even more new for all the investors that are putting together those ESG funds and fund trackers, mm. right? And and essentially, they are effectively not doing their research either. They're just taking the, the ratings that are coming off the rating companies, aggregating them together in their funds and saying, here is an ESG fund based on the ratings that we're getting from these agencies. But the ratings that we're getting from these agencies are by and large, I mean, we don't know what they are, right? Mm. Uh, you know, essentially, all they are is I, as a company, said, yeah, I'm really good. And MSCI and all these other companies said, great, well, big tick for saying that you're really good and therefore we rate you highly, right? There's no auditing. And I yeah. think that's one of the biggest issues, like, okay, what is real? And the FTX thing has shown, well, you know, what is real? Like, you know, just, just because they said we're great doesn't matter. And, and look, that comes down to, like, you know, all those VCs that put money into FTX as well. I mean, they put their money and, you know, Sam basically says, hey, I got $200 million worth of profits and nobody decided to go and check whether those $200 million of profits were real, you know, what they were backed by, what they were underpinned by, you know, all these sort of failures of governance in FTX are, are very critical. Now, those failures of governance are now, like, it's now apparent that it's not just FTX, of course. It was not, wasn't just because of three hours capital. It's not just FTX. It's right across the crypto industry, and which is most amusing because if the crypto industry hadn't been so against regulatory, pre you know, yeah, regulatory, yeah. allowed themselves to be regulatory, regulated, they would probably still be very rich. 
you yeah. know, because they would have followed rules that wouldn't have made this whole debacle happen in the first place. So I think that, um, you know, it's 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 what's happening is that there is a, a, a clear trend into and But this is just the early stage. And that's why for so many companies in the you know early stage startups and in climate and sustainability, right, it is still still early days. You know, corporates are going to need a tremendous amount of help to make manage themselves through this transition and a tremendous amount of technology to actually achieve that transition. They actually have to do something. As I said, you know, it's not yeah. just about offsets. They actually have to, you know, decarbonize, decarbonize. Yeah, and yeah, and, uh, yeah. I think decarbonize as well, like the everything else you said, right? Water pollution, this, yeah. that, everything uh, become better across the system, and that's really a, such a massive opportunity for uh, new founders and early founders, right, in this space. I mean, there's a there's a common um, phrase in Web three is like we're still early, right? The, the the Twitter gang always say that, uh, but that's really more of okay. That's really a massive thing in in climate. So this is such an early budding space, and there's so much opportunity, which um. Which I, which I which I love, right? And I want to kind of uh, circle back to something you said before, because you, you, you the, the way, and I, I've noticed this having worked with you for the for the last um, well six months is that you, you you run you start a business in a different way to I guess traditional um, theory and books, which was which I've been really impressed with. Which you do th- like rigorous research of an industry before making a move. You you trial something, test something, trial something, test something. You know why is that so important to you? Well, I think you know you're not sure how the market is going to shake down. Now, of course, back in May June when we started this, we were a pure crypto funded business. Yeah. Today, if we had gone down that path fully and hard down that path, we would be in a difficult position, to say the least, because, you know, even the crypto funds are disappearing right now. So, you know, the holdings that people are holding, like, where are they and what are they underpinned by and are they truly real? Like, so I think that was... You know, there was a little uncertainty, and and especially it came after three hours capital. There was a little bit of the back in my back of the head going, you know, this cannot be just limited to three hours capital. This has to be bigger than that, uh, which was you know, definitely proven to be to be right. And I think um, the also the thing is is just what is the space to go into, and how can that be the biggest biggest opportunity and the biggest thing that you need so i think we have obviously in our time together in the last six months worked out exactly where we are and where we need to be and what is the biggest opportunity to help humans on the planet um but you know we're looking at this now and understanding that our, our mission from the very start was how do we finance climate better and how do we make climate uh you know startups and and sustainability startups you know interesting cool and you know, doing not just doing the right thing, but doing it on a massive scale, right? You know, and that's really an interesting problem. And then, how do you engage brands and you know other um, you know influencers, etc., to help those companies grow because they're very keen on it? And I think that intersection has been incredibly interesting, which is where we've kind of you know become where we've got to. But I, I think that's that is very important. I, I do fundamentally believe that when you're starting a business, you need to take time and assess understand what's going on who are the key players who are the key supporters who can help you with their ecosystem who has an ecosystem and 
that you can tap into. So, so what are you doing there? So, so, so are you are you talking to people? You researching? Like how how do you, how exactly do you go about it? Well, I, I think you know both of us, right? You've yeah. been doing it as well. You've been out there looking at the you know been going out to conferences, talking to people, getting into the networks, understanding who needs what, which are the big climate businesses, what are their funding needs. Um, you know, you build start to build up a picture. Yeah. And and I think that's the the key. You start to build up a picture of what what are the different moving parts, so that when you go for it, you can execute very fast on one key thing that you can see is going to be the most important thing that is going to get the great greatest initial take up and interest in what you're doing. Um, you know, too many too many companies will get going too fast, mm. and. Uh, have not done enough research. And of course, you know, the other thing as well is there's there's no such thing as an original idea, right? Almost certainly this, your idea has been done or thinking about, someone else is thinking about it somewhere else. And so it really becomes execution. You need to find out what else is going on yeah. and just see where they are. I think it's important to talk to real people as well, which yeah. is which is something I want to talk about because I had this, um, uh, a, a lot of my friends, I've, I've been doing startups for a long time. A lot of my friends come and talk to me about what I need to be doing. One of the biggest things I always say is you have to talk to real people. There's no amount of desk-based research you can do for a business like this to properly understand the market. So you have to physically go out there or even virtually online, go out there and talk to people and build up a real picture. Um, so that's, 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 that's what we've done and we've saved ourselves a lot of like, just money and time in understanding exactly where the market is and how we can best position our skills to be um, most effective in our mission, which is really at its core helping climate technology companies scale faster yep. and better and more profitably. One thing I really want to let the audience know is like on a granular level, what are the first things you did when so you have the idea for Equilibrium, now you want to make it into a reality. How did you go from that zero to one phase? Yeah, that's a great question and that's always the that's always the key. It's it's a regional question as well. So we started Equilibrium in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons we started in Singapore is because we, you know, I've lived and worked in Asia for 20 years and I understand that market very well, but I also, I like the way that, um, you know, we can build things in Asia quick and effectively and fast and execute quickly. The, the downside of being in Asia is you don't, you're not on the ground in the US, which is by far the biggest market for any, any time you want to do a startup. There are two big markets. It's really China and the US and to a certain degree India, but really China and the US. And, um, and we're not going to do China. So, you know, US is always going to be the big, big focus, especially when it comes to what we're trying to do, which is climate, which is heavily you know, focused on. Europe is great, but it's a disparate market. It's, it's a market of lots of bits. Mm. And so it's hard to execute in Europe from the start. US is easy because you have, boom, you have one massive market ready to go. You just need to execute for that one market. And China is the same. And as I said, India is the same. So, but, you know, at the same time, we're, we're looking at when we're getting started, we're looking at developer costs, you know, in Americas are like, you know, starting at Crazy, 200, right? $220,000, yeah. dollars just to get like a third, you know, three-year, four-year developer of, of reasonable skill. So that's not going to work out. So, you know, how do you think about like executing? So we were in Singapore and we looked at where are the different, you know, there's fantastic talent all around Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, et cetera. But one of the, one of the best um, places for talent is Taiwan. Taiwan, uh, which is where we established our development team at the start of 2020, January 2020, you know, it was crazy, man. January yeah. 2020, we're up there in, so myself, 
uh, and Angel, my co-founder, Jay was down in Singapore, um, you know, my other co-founder. Uh, we went up to Taiwan and she was Taiwanese American and she was like, you know, I think we should take a look at Taiwan. And Spark Labs, my fund, we have a big investment um, in Taiwan. So I know Taiwan well. I know the talent well. It's highly educated. Very familiar with the US. Taiwanese go back and forth to US. Often the kids are either going to American school in Taiwan or going to American school, you know, going to school in America. So they've got a very strong affinity with the US. Um, you know, excellent English, very, very high quality degree of education and and execute really well. So we decide Taiwan. So, yeah. you know, and you just really decide where you want to be, but you really need to go, here I am going to be this location. I do think when you're starting a company and if you're trying to do everything remote, it can be very, very difficult. Like it's, you know, especially when you're starting off, if you, it depends what you do. You know, if you set your company up to be remote from the start, it's great, but You'll, you'll often find that, unfortunately, that like, half your team might be off doing other jobs at the same time. You just can't get a feel for that at the time, right? You can't feel that, you know. And you can't set a culture, right, which is the – what, what, yeah. It's very tough to set a culture. That's right. And so we got to Taiwan, January 2020. Um, and at the same time in January 2020, uh, the Ta Taiwanese government, who has been, you know, had been hit very, very hard by SARS a few years ago, sent a delegation over to Wuhan in the first week of January 2020 and come back and go, right, that's it. We're locking the borders, right? Oh, Way before anybody else. <laughs> so we're up there and the borders get locked down. Now, for the whole of 2020, Taiwan is incredible. They, there was no, it was just like this. We were allowed, you know, you could go out to restaurants, bars, you know, there was no lockdown. There was no... So there's a national, there was like a border lockdown, but no lockdown within the country. Lockdown. That's right. See, that makes sense. It was crazy. Things in Asia just make more sense than here. Well, they yeah. worked out pretty well. <laughs> and, and also because, you know, there was no protests, you know, it's like, of course, this is a yeah. good idea, right? We went through SARS, we understand how bad this could be, and, and we understand that well, this is what we need to do. And and for the entire year, they only had 600 cases, like... 600? 600 cases for the whole year. And that is despite being literally off the border from China. Yeah, next so, door. Yeah. You know, it's incredible how well they locked down and how well they controlled it during 2020. Wow. Uh, and then come 2021, you know, they also managed to unlock themselves in 2021 and 22, you know, slower than the rest of Asia, but have not had the same problems of China. And um, and now, you know, everybody's vaccinated and everything. But back then, so, so here we are, we build an office, we hire a team, everybody's there working together. And we're all working with the same goal and we're one of the few companies in the world where we're all literally still working together side by side. And yeah. I think that also helped a tremendous amount. So did you raise money first? No. No, we didn't. We were, it was all pretty much self-funded. We, we raised a small amount. Like four or five hundred thousand dollars from um, from a few friends, you know, yeah. to participate in in what we were doing. But you know, by and large, it was the three founders and the team that ended up, you know, um, at the end of it, like three founders. I think we had eighty eight percent, and then or eighty five percent of the company, and then you know, the rest of it was you know, a small group of friends and and the rest of the team. And, and I think that we were just about to do the A round when we when we got sold. But I think um, you know, to that point. Uh, if you can self-fund to a certain degree, it is great. But you you do you 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 have to move fast. I mean, one of the issues, of course, is that if you don't move fast, you will always find that a U.S. company will, with huge amounts of funding, you, their product may not be as good as yours. In fact, often it probably isn't. But 
they outspend you. And yeah, they've they got fun. They've got money to fund the distribution, sales, exactly. marketing, all this kind of stuff, and then they exactly, can, and they flood. And in America, yeah. you know, U.S. companies extremely good at that. Product is, you know, often not as good as something coming out of Asia or the or Europe. But what they're very, very good at is, as you say, flooding the market from a marketing and distribution level, so that no one ever hears about any other yeah, yeah. any other competitor because they are just so good at making sure that you hear about them and sell very, very well. Right. What do you mean by that? Um, so, you know, U.S. companies, U.S. companies sell extremely well. They're, they're extremely organized around, like, the sales process and the closing of that sales process. You know, they're very, very good at doing that. Yeah. And, um, and then backing it up with great, you know, great customer service usually, right? Yeah. So the company we sold to, Fiscal Note, is actually best of both worlds. Not only do they have very good products and software and good people, but they also have a very good business development team. So it's a very good combination of everything in that. And you know, when you get that, it works very, very well. Yeah. The US companies are just very good at it. And, and so that's where I always believe that if you are a startup and you are going into the enterprise market for any reason, you have to start in the US. Like it's the hardest market to start in, but it's also the biggest opportunity because um, going to the US market later is hard. The sales are just so ingrained in, in the American culture, isn't it? Mm. Which is commendable because in, in the UK in particular and Asia to an extent as well, it's slightly more reserved and stuff. But what I found is Americans have absolutely no shame. I'm going to sell to you right now. And then you know you're getting sold to, but it's impressive. And that's really such an important thing as, as a startup, as a startup, right? Yeah. Yeah, because enterprises that you're selling to are extremely used to buying software as well. Yeah. You know, they, it's very transactional. You know, it's not like here in, you know, in the UK where you have to go and have like 20 lunches with the, the person you're trying to sell to before you get to, right? Yeah. The guy in the US has no interest in that, like absolutely mm. zero interest. He, he, you know, their job, uh, you know, whoever's buying, they are simply focused on, okay, do you have the right what I need? Um, do you have what it is? They're very transactional. They have very good RFP processes. So on the same side, while, yes, sales is very good, on the same side, the enterprise is very good at understanding what they want and how to buy it, and you don't yeah. need to waste a lot of money you know, trying to be my friend. I don't, yeah. I don't want to be your friend. I just need to <laughs> know if you've got great software. Yeah. Well, you're in the UK, it's a lot. I need to get to know you. You know, yeah. you're, you're a good guy, etc. And yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, yes, that's true, obviously, in any market, including the US. But in the US, it's very much, what can you do for me? Can you deliver? What's your track record? Can I see your references? Yeah. You know, it's very direct. Yeah. No, I love that. So w were you selling into the US or were you selling into into Asia? Yeah, you were So we were selling into Asia. We were starting to sell into the US, um, but we were selling predominantly in Asia. And we had we were just starting to move into the US market when 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 the um, when Fiscal Note came in and decided to to take us, but but and bring us into the fold. And and that was interesting because they have already you know four or five nearly five thousand enterprise clients, and so the opportunity to work with their existing base to help them expand their ESG understanding and portfolio was just a good match between yeah. the two companies. Yeah, I mean, that, that was going to be my next question. Like, why did they buy you, right? So is this, is this a service they were offering or that they just weren't doing good? Like, what, like, what was the real secret source? In That's like Fiscal Note has a fantastic, you know, Fiscal Note is one of the leading providers of policy and regulatory software and information to large corporates. And, you know, policy and regulatory were one of those big issues is ESG. And so they were like, okay, so how can we expand? And how can we expand to offer more additional value to our customer? 
right? So beyond the policy and regulatory information, can we offer ESG services, ESG information, ESG um, strategy, ESG data management, because ESG is part of what we do anyway from a policy and regulatory viewpoint. So it fitted really, really well. Yeah. You know, so they were looking at, okay, how can we expand what we offer our customers? So, you know, that's where a mix is very, very good. You know, one case where it hasn't been so good is Planetly, which was one of our competitors out of Germany. They sold to OneTrust. Now, OneTrust is a security company, effectively, right? Mm. OneTrust wanted to get into ESG, data management, etc. But OneTrust is security. It's, it's not as an obvious link from selling to security and IT to trying to sell ESG, which mm. is a totally different sector in sustainability and legal, right? And, you know, so, and recently they literally fired all 200 people from Planetly and basically shut it down. And you've just like, that's where a mix doesn't work, where Planetly joined one trust, which looks really good on paper, but it's actually fundamentally not. This is a security company. This is a carbon data company. Boy, did those two not match. So, mm. you know, and that's where you do need to look at what is the right mix between what the company wants. Because so many companies just buy you because they think, well, that sounds cool or that might be a sector we want to go into, but there's no natural fit. Yeah. Well, with fiscal note, there is a very, was very much and still is a very much natural fit. Awesome. So um, the next segment, we're going to talk about investing. But before we get there, there's a lot of um, uh, first-time founders, potential founders, um, uh, listening to this pod, what advice would you have for those uh, uh, early founders in the climate tech space or second time founders that are entering into climate tech space? Uh, yeah, what's your advice for them just in general in building in this sector? Well, one, in the climate tech space, there is an enormous amount of opportunity. It's still very, very early days. We're only kind of three, four years into this really in terms of taking off. While companies have been working in this space for like 20, 30 years, in terms of taking off, it's like the last three, four years. Um, I, I would say that, again, research is pretty critical. The, the issue is really is that there are two parts here. One is the software side of things from a data management perspective. And and that can be, you know, satellite technology, looking at agriculture land, climate patterns, climate impact, right? So there is a data aspect here. And then there is the data aspect of helping corporates, you know, manage their data better there is the there is the data aspect or the kind of what we'd say the rating aspect of what's going on with um from an investor viewpoint so investors are looking at okay how do i how do i understand what's coming out of the market or better like and there's geopolitical risk there's you know again like climate impact on physical buildings so there's a ton of software so that's interesting like there's a, a lot going on there already but as always there's there's always more to do and more to to look at so I think that's a very fascinating space. And then really the other side of climate is it's very physical, right? Because we're looking at buildings, we're looking at cars, we're looking at packaging, you know, everything in terms of becoming, you know, clothing, et cetera, agriculture, regenerative agriculture. There's so much of this climate, you know, technology, which is effectively physical. And that obviously is hardware is hard in a way, right? So it's not just hardware, thank God, this time. And it's not just about shipping consumer products, which is the most difficult business to go into. But it is, um, but what it is, is it is physical. And so it does require one great research, very smart people who have come up with deep technology that's going to change things. And then like, how do you, 
how do you fund that and how do you get that started? Again, that's difficult. I've seen some great ideas around the market which just don't have the right funding or they're not in the right space. So often they might be in Europe where you know, predominantly VCs in Europe are predominantly fintech VCs. There are a few great climate VCs like 2150, Pale Blue Dot. But those are kind of few and far between at the moment. And so the, the opportunity to get strong funding for a climate tech business in Europe is hard. Mm. Uh, you know, Europe is still predominantly fintech driven from an investor viewpoint. Europe, is, US is much, much better, um, but you're going to need to be in the US to do that. So I would say that if you're in the climate tech business, you really should be predominantly, I think, in, in the US or if you're, if you're in physical um, work, then you have to do something very, very, you know, mind blowing, like some of the stuff that like, for instance, Climeworks, the biggest, you know, carbon capture business in the world, which is essentially, you know, Switzerland and Iceland, you know, they've shown that you can do it, but you have to be able to do it well and have something very fundamentally important to do it. Like, so, and I've seen some, as I said, great technologies and great opportunities and things doing some fantastic things, but you have to be in the right space because... In the smaller markets, investors just don't understand this right now. It's still very, very early for them to understand. And because it's so physical, most investors will be like, well, we've just done digital. We don't really understand any of this physical nature of it. So a lot of the best VCs in this area are in the US um, and, and Australia. And some, as I said, here in Europe, 2150, Pablo Dot, et cetera. But, but predominantly, it is US and Asia are the, the actually the markets that are better at this. And so um, I think that... Uh, you know, you should look at that as to where you should be in the first place. Mm. And then the the last part is obviously consumer because so many consumer goods are becoming sustainable and brands are becoming sustainable. And so there's opportunities to launch great consumer brands and new consumer brands that are sustainable. That is definitely going to be a very, very big thing. And And I think there'll be a lot of change where brands change like you know what is what was a great brand five six years or right now is not going to be a great brand if they don't manage this transition to becoming fully sustainable i've seen brands out there which are saying they're sustainable but really they've got like one or two pairs of sunglasses that are sustainable and everything else is still normal yeah. so you know, yeah. that's not going to work right so like how do you how do you shift everything across your market to to move from what was existing you know not a sustainable business from a packaging and everything perspective to becoming a sustainable business is hard. So I think there is a big opportunity for new sustainable brands. The biggest opportunity for me is is the data market, um, looking at analysing data, particularly in climate impact. Um, the second one is agriculture and food and energy to a certain degree, but those th two, three, especially food and agriculture and water, because those three things are going to be so critical in the next two years, especially during a tough global recession. So there is a lot of money that's going to go into food, agriculture and water. And the third thing is consumer brands that are probably new and are trying new things like insects, insect food, or, you know, different types of, um, you know, clothing, Pangaea, for instance, you know, yeah. just, just, just these type of like fundamental brands, which are sustainable from the very start. So it's not like I'm a brand who is, you know, m you know, moving towards becoming sustainable. It's like, I am a sustainable brand from the very, very start. So I do think that's a big opportunity still. Yeah, so hard to change your DNA as a big brand, right? Yeah. I mean, we saw this in the kind of era I came up in, which was the social media 
error and that that was there's, there's actually so many parallels between those two things like so social media was this like new com, com, completely new thing which startups were able to adopt much quicker than the bigger companies i mean adidas was kind of good but so many big brands died because they couldn't tran they couldn't transition onto social media and then you had people like gymshark my protein uh, just these e-com centric brands, which ironically are now going physical. Gymshark just opened a physical store, and it's, it's it's a similar kind of parallel. Like as a, as a startup right now, there's so much opportunity to start brands, but this is the core DNA of it, and really disrupt basically any industry, right? Uh, which is a, a message I really really want to portray uh, because uh, in a similar model of of I view so so many different parallels of like the internet the, the internet revolution and, and the climate revolution is that um one one you're gonna have to adapt really really fast there's going to be a lot of com uh, companies that fall but also like when you say, it's a bit crazy to today to say like an internet company right it's just that every company an internet's part of every company like what company doesn't use the internet and then you've got all the different sectors on that climate isn't a sector it's a whole movement and 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 there's, I mean, you spoke about some that you'd go after there, like sustainable ag, which is obviously something we're both really, really interested in. Huge market, particularly with the political climate. But there's so many different sectors that you can look at as a potential founder, which would be, uh, yeah, I guess just incredibly exciting in the space. Yeah, I mean, you, one great example there was Gymshark. Yeah. That's a great example. Gymshark. Started by, you know, a great kid. Was it 20, 21? Or what? And I think, yeah, I think it was like 19 when he started. Yeah, he started yeah. out of his parents' garage, right? Yeah. And But purely e-com from the very start. And I, I remember when I had a handset company and we were working through, you know, the, the likes of Carphone Warehouse and everything, and I, I suggested let's go e-com. And, you know, the, the you know, everyone was like, well, really? And this is in the early days, 2008, 2009, but it was – it was right. I mean, like, we should go e-com. We shouldn't be going through a car phone warehouse. It was a complete waste of money. But how do you um, how do you shift the business to going e-com overnight when they're so tuned to going down traditional channels like car phone warehouse, right? So yeah. incredibly tough. And I, I remember going through that, trying to get the business to shift to an e-com model and just it didn't, you know, I just couldn't get everybody to, to move in that direction um, because, you know, your, your sales are going through traditional channels. So if you're going to just go e-com, you kind of almost have to switch off that channel and start again, right? It's really tough. Gymshark is a great example where from the very start, it's purely e-com. And so, and then they've grown to an incredible space and now they come back to a physical store perspective. I think the same thing is is absolutely right in, a sustain, in brands and sustainable brands. I think that, you know, brands that start up as new sustainable climate friendly, water friendly, ocean friendly, whatever they are, brands from the very start have an inherent advantage over brands that are trying to port their way to it. Now, some big business, some big brands, the Gucci's and everything of this world will always do well. It doesn't matter what happens, right? Yeah. But others will struggle for sure. Yeah, for sure. And and, and I know exactly what some people are going to say at this is that they... Uh, they they think a lot of this stuff is greenwashing. Like this is a tough question, but as a new company, how do you really communicate it's definitely that? Definitely not greenwashing. I mean, yeah. so so I mean, there is a ton of greenwashing going on, right? Particularly yeah. in the carbon credit thing, right? That's ridiculous, you know. Yeah. But 
But there is a lot of companies that aren't, right? So, you know, there are some companies like, you know, there's a big, big company, big US Australian company called Pratt. Pratt is one of the biggest packaging companies in the world, right? Yeah. The founder is very close to Trump. Um, and you would think, you know, probably isn't that interested in environmental side. Absolutely the opposite. Has been incredibly environmentally focused for many years, understood that packaging was going to all be sustainable, right? Yeah. And so, and they are so far advanced in their sustainable packaging that they deliver and how they produce it and they're able to audit it and show a company that is going to be wanting to use sustainable packaging or their sustainable packaging, the supply chain that came into that packaging right from start to finish. So therefore, I, as IKEA, I'm like, I'm very confident that the packaging I get from Pratt is unbelievably tight all the way down supply chain. I know what I'm getting here and I can trust what I'm getting here, right? So yeah. so absolutely not. I mean, I do think that companies are way advanced now in terms of that. The problem is, is there is a large amount of greenwashing still going on. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a lot of companies that are actually decarbonizing, actually making the changes, actually doing the right thing. So the issue is communicating that to the consumer. I think that's the big issue, right? So, so is this being communicated correctly to the consumer? Because the consumer sees, oh, like, you know, this happens a lot where, you know, digital agencies who don't really get the whole sustainability space, right? And, you know, some brand comes to them and says, can you help me be more sustainable? And the digital agency's answer is, yeah, you know, stop using plastic bags and we'll do a campaign about the fact that you stopped using plastic bags or something like that. Or you bought a rainforest or sponsored a rainforest, right? Consumers see through that completely because that campaign and the way that it is being communicated to the consumer is just very poor and very poorly executed, right? It's just something consumers see through straight away and they're not going to get excited about the brands suddenly deciding to not use plastic bags and shouting about it or having a few more sustainable fibres or, you know, some pictures of, you know, some, some you know, villages in, in Asia or Africa around <laughs> their shop because that's been making them more sustainable. Like, all of that stuff doesn't really work. Customers see that through that way too quickly now, particularly Gen Z and millennials. They'll see yeah. through it straight away. So I do think comms and communicating and brand and strategy around this is really critical um but you know it's still still early days yeah i completely agree like it's, it's your responsibility as a founder to communicate that and and prove it's not greenwashing like do a video of you going behind the, the scenes in the factory or go go to the places is it's not enough just to put a sustainable toothbrush or like like that's right that's not like that doesn't cut it anymore because consumers will see that as like straight greenwashing uh it's your responsibility to actually go out and prove and show actually show your customers what you're doing because in this day and age of social media where we've become so used to transparency consumers want to see behind a brand it's not some mystique where like everything's going on behind the curtain and consumers just want a product anymore they want to know the full life cycle they want to know the people behind it they want to know the processes so i really i really really love that point um uh in the interest of time like that's been awesome. There's 101 more questions I want to ask you in that. However, uh, this podcast is both about building. So we've dug into you building your own climate tech startup, but you've also been an investor since, what was it, 2017, 2016? In climate, yeah. I mean, in climate, for yeah. Years, but yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry. Climate, climate right. tech yeah. investor in the space. Yeah. You were very, very early in this. What was the thought process? When did you think, oh, I want to work in climate and why? Well, uh, so there were two my, you know, two partners in the Cultivate Fund, um, very Australian, JJ and Mal. Uh, <laughs> Malcolm Nutt and Jonathan Quigley. Um, they were, it was originally their 
you know, we were talking about it. They were early investors in Spike Labs' career, our career fund, um, which is not in sustainable. They're not then anyway. And um, uh, but they were out of Australia, and they were like, "Look, we really like the concept of what you know you guys are doing. We'd like to look at doing this in Australia from a food and agriculture perspective." And I was like, "You know, we should add sustainability to that area as well." And they, you know, decided to to get going with it, and uh, and I was very very keen on that, and so joined them on that path to do that. And now that you know, we now have our second fund, which is a hundred million dollar fund that JJML have have raised and are now deploying into the market, and and it, which is great because these ty- these days it's not easy to raise a fund. So being able to do that clearly shows the appetite, but also the ability to do that in the right time. Um, so I, I think that, and what we see is just an enormous amount of climate, food, energy, and agricultural companies actually just trying to pick the winners is the tricky thing. But you know, it's not from a lack of opportunity. There is so much out there, and it's just figuring out which one of the right ones to, to back at the moment. Yeah. But what was, can you remember the aha moment of thinking, right, this is the sector I want to work in now? Yeah, I think, you know, I was just seeing generally, I was picking up, I like to read a lot of, you know, news and digest a lot of kind of information. And I was just seeing a stronger and stronger, stronger, you know, insights and information coming in from like, you know, what you call back then green news, ESG news, climate news, etc., that was getting stronger and stronger, and even back in 2017. And and honestly, I'm seeing you know we're we're not hitting targets. We're we're going to go way beyond our 1.5 degree target. And and just thinking, look, I got a kid, and you know I, I just don't want him growing up in a place that is you know where the the planet is well falling apart at least for humans. So, yeah. um, and you know there's no you know there's no animals left, and the oceans are boiling, or you know no fish. You know I just didn't want to like you know I'd grown up in the country, I'd grown up in a really idyllic environment in the country when I was a kid, and I didn't want that, you know. So it was very, very fundamentally driven from that area, which was I'm not that interested in another social network or, mm. you know, another marketplace. I'm just not interested in it anymore. And, uh, you know, what what can I do that is going to be, you know, my impact and my legacy for, you know, for, for my children, right? So that's really where it comes down to being very, very exciting and, and interesting. And that that was the moment where it was like, I just can't do another. I can't invest in another, you know, you know, uh, you know, e-commerce marketplace. I just can't do it. Now, obviously, now we're coming back and we're now looking at agricultural marketplaces and food <laughs> marketplaces and everything. But but at least they're in the sector that I want to be in, right? So it was just like I can't be interested in, in another one that is better at optimal at shifting fast fashion from one point to the other, right? It's just yeah. not interesting. Um, and uh, and I think that's well, that was the main thing. I was just I, I want to do something that is um, different and focused on one particular sector and i think the climate obviously climate sustainability sector is fantastic we you know have invested in web3 uh quite a bit over the years as well um and uh thankfully have stayed out of the crypto funds so more more things like you know web actual web3 properties like genies and masari etc which are great actual properties that you know have you know kind of real revenues and a lot lending money around all over the place but but primarily you know climate has been the really interesting one yeah 
No, that that's fascinating. So it was um, one uh, just a feeling of like legacy. You didn't want to leave the world in a bad way, but then you also yeah. you're also reading a lot and saw that commercial opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so you sh- you you you, you pick sustainable ag, which is quite top, it's quite a, a, a big industry in Australia, right? Yeah. What kind of uh, I mean is. It, can you tell the audience about some really some of the companies you invested in that you really liked? What what kind of constitutes sustainable ag and what's been successful? Well, in this space? You know, sustainable yeah. climate, right? So so we invested in a company called Future Feed. Future yeah. Feed is um, has little seaweed seaweed supplements mm. basically derived from seaweed supplements that you put into the feed for cattle for cows yeah. and it reduces their methane by seventy to eighty percent. You know that that is an incredible impact on that. Another one out of Israel called use. Um, this is in, in uh, poultry farming. So poultry farming, as you might imagine, so in, in chickens, like half the chicks are usually male and mm. they usually get pulped because the poultry industry has no use for 50% of its of males. It needs chickens to lay eggs. So they get pulped and, uh, and that's 50% of the yield, right? So use, what it does is it changes the sex of the chicken in the egg. And so really? it switch, switches it from male to female. So you have this incredibly, hu- you know, you, not only do you have a much far better yield for the for the farmers going, you know, yeah. uh, you know, now I'm getting a far more, a lot more female chickens, but it means that we don't pulp 50%. I mean, if you've ever seen the videos of those chicks getting pulped, it is horrible. So you just think, you know, that's, that was, that's something that's great. Another one that we do. Uh, which is very interesting, is Melibio. Melibio is one of my favorites. It's vegan honey. Now, you think vegan honey. Well, what is that? It's just like a bunch of San Francisco people that don't want to have, you know, like, you know, bees producing their honey. Well, actually not, right? It's really interesting. It's, um, you know, you're always going to get honey from honeybees, right? But there are two big things that are happening here. One, um, honey, the bees producing honey are subject far more to climate change now. Like whole colonies can get wiped out. Um, the costs can go up and down. It's incredibly variable in terms of the delivery of honey um, from a cost and timing perspective. And also there are 20,000 types of wild bees in uh, the US alone, and they are under huge pressure from honeybees. Like honeybees come in, take their habitat, and reduce the wild bees, and the wild bees we need for biodiversity. Honeybees don't do anything for biodiversity. So the wild bees are really what drives biodiversity, so that impact is there. But what the real interesting thing is here is industrial honey. So you think your Kellogg's um, cereal, your, your Nestle, your all the products that use honey, those companies want honey regularly at the right price and at the right time, and they want it regularly. Melly Bio can do it. Produces honey without bees, but it's producing honey. It tastes, it is honey, right? But it's just without bees. Is it, how, how do they do it? Is it what, in, in a lab? Or like, yeah, 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 it's, yeah, it's lab. Yeah. It's lab grown. But it's, um, and so from Kellogg's and Nestle's perspective, this is fantastic, right? I get exactly what I am. I'm not subject to climate change wiping out the bee populations and I get consistency. So, yeah, of course, like real honey from bees is always going to be what I put on my my toast, but I I don't need real honey from bees in my Kellogg's cereal. I just need the honey ingredient in the Kellogg's cereal. So that's where it becomes very interesting. And that type of... In process is great. There's another one we saw, which we haven't invested in, but which I saw in Italy called Planet Farms. This is a great example of this. Planet Farms is a vertical farm business. 
they started with basil. And the thing about that is that they were able to produce basil, you know, not subject in the in their big in their factories at, at exactly the same quality, exactly the same price, and exactly the same quantity that people need, and it's very very high quality. So they're able to produce, they're able to give to Italian restaurants basil of very high quality, exactly when they need it, and exactly at the price. They know what it is. There's no, you know, up and down. Oh, you know, the basil got wiped out this month, so. You know the price of basil goes up, right? So they're able to deliver this exactly the way it needs to be done. Now that's super interesting. And then Chanel comes along and says, "Wonder, can you do that with flowers? Because all our perfume requires flowers, and we are subject even more to climate change impact on flowers and logistics and supply chain issues on flowers. If you guys can produce flowers at exactly the same quality, exactly the same, we're going to love it. And of course, that's what they were able to do. So you look at these businesses and you think. Oh, like vegan honey is just for vegans. No, it's nothing to do with that. It's it's about producing quality at the right price at the right time. Same thing with the vertical farming market. And consistency, right, which I couldn't help but think. That, that, that seems like such an interesting point. Like in a world where um, climate is really a risk for people. So you talk about the honey, you talk about the flowers, you talk about the basil, which are, the, the yields in that are changing, uh, which is a, a big risk for uh companies that rely on that by creating this sustainable uh, approach which is um, uh, when you were saying that I was like the sustainable there has kind of two meanings which is quite cool right it's sustainable for the planet but then also sustainable for the business in the sense that it's consistent they get the same yields they know they know the inputs they know the outputs which isn't really necessarily the same uh, from the from the alternatives so that's like a, a really interesting way to view building and investing in these businesses is like what's the commercial case almost outside of climate because if you can marry those two in a very very productive way you're just going to be onto a, onto a winner right if you can hit business goals like consistency and reduce um someone's uh carbon and, and impact on the environment you're going to have a lot more fun in in distributing that a lot a lot more ease um uh, so, so, so when you're investing in these climate tech companies, what are the key things you're looking for? Um, we're looking, as always, look, it still comes down to the same fundamentals when it, with, a, with any business. It's the founders. Mm. You know, are the founders able to execute and drive? Is the technology they have um, fundamentally different? And is it, you know, groundbreaking in a way, especially when it comes to stuff like climate, right? So in, in digital stuff like e-commerce and marketplace, just tiny little tweaks to is this marketing strategy slightly better than the other marketing strategy and that's how, you know, to do things better. Mm. But in climate and sustainability and, you know, energy, food, agriculture, it does need to be something re relatively fundamental and, ground and, and groundbreaking. So we look at that um, and then we look at where they're located, Usually, like location, as I said beforehand, does make a massive difference. You know, if you are located in a in a market which you know where investors are going to, nobody understands anything to do with this sector. You're going to struggle because you, if you, you know, unless you're self-funded forever, you're going to really struggle because you just don't have the opportunity to to fund the business in the right way. So, you know, we we do recommend that. You know, founders that are in this particular sector, you know, that they at least relocate to the US if possible. 
and even if the team is somewhere else, that's completely fine. But they need to be relocated in the US, like, and the company needs to relocate in the US. And or just from a structural perspective, from a structural perspective, okay. yeah. So yeah. I think that's extremely important. So we do look at that those areas, um, and uh, you know, how is the company going to scale? Like, so you know, does it? You know, when is it actually going to really get to market? How are they going to scale from there? What is the fundamental business model around it? Um, and what are the funding cycles that are going to be required to make this thing scale? So there is, it's just the same stuff. But as I said beforehand, because it's a lot more physical now, unless there's three things again, the physical nature of some products, the data nature of some products and the consumer nature, brand nature of some products, it does depend on different things. But still, like founders, executable, you know, and funding cycles yeah. are still the same. And are there red flags for you? Yeah, I think red flags is again location. Like yeah. uh, location is a big red flag. Um, you know, if the founder is set on being in the middle of nowhere, like or in a small country with no climate VC support, that's a red flag. Uh, if the um, if the founder is set on going into a market that isn't big enough and isn't ready for what he's trying to do, then or she uh, more she these days, in, especially in climate. Um, then you know that's that's definitely the same same problem, and then um, and then there is a is there a is there a you know look does the founder still have the ability to really go after this thing and really push it and crush it and scale it? That's always going to be the same thing where it is. Um, a lot of the times in this sector, it, it, you can get you're getting people that are you know out of research institutions or PhDs etc. And if they're if their co-founders are fantastic people in the business sector who've, you know, startup sector who've done this beforehand, great. But if they're just coming out of research and their first thing is coming into a climate tech startup, maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, we would definitely come down to does the person really understand how to build a business coming out of a research background? And trust me, that does work sometimes, but often it doesn't. So there's a, there can be some red flags there, and that's why... Great, great builders like you know, for instance, uh, Entrepreneur First, like they they take research people and business people and bring them together and build companies. You know, so I think um, there's you know that there is some some flags around that. How, in your opinion, how how quick is this sector going to develop? You know, it's it's kind of the climate's been around and it's been front of mind. Uh, for a lot of people for 20 years but really we're, we're, we're at a period where we're really starting to feel a real changing gear what do the next five years look like in your opinion I think the next five years are everything you know tremendously exciting because it's only going to grow right uh, it is only going to grow and more and more people are going to go into it I think the you know, what's been very interesting is just the Web3 meltdown. So, you know, a lot of great, talented people went into Web3. Um, maybe that talent is now going to go, well, okay, effectively, we all went in there because we believed in the power of crypto to change the world, but it turned out that it was a bunch of founders who weren't really interested in the power of crypto to change the world, but really the power of crypto to change themselves and their <laughs> bank balance, right? So I think the interest in that, you know, maybe is going to change and that you're mm -hmm. going to some people who are drawn by the ideals of wanting to really do something and change the planet are going to move out of Web3 into into climate. Um, but also I think Web3 and climate will come together more, right? So how can crypto fund climate and how can that, you know, 
do that better. So how you know there'll be people who will be in those two sectors coming together. Um, I still think that Web three and climate are the two big things for the next ten years. You know, despite what's just happened, I do think, of course, that you know that's things are going to change in the next ten years, and these are the two exciting sectors to be in, and there'll be crossover between those two sectors. Um, but yeah, I think if you, so many, so many people, kids coming out of school are going into sustainability courses, carbon courses, you know, sustainable engineers, you know, and it's just such a hot sector in the universities now that that's really encouraging. Um, so you, you know that people are going to come out of those universities, out of those courses and, and start to do great things. So, yeah. And that wasn't the case. Four years ago, those courses were sparsely attended and small in number. Now they're, you know, they're big. Yeah, so important, right? There's there's that old phrase, skates where the puck's going. That's right. Yeah, so and uh, something that I've, I really want to do with this pod is just make people aware that this is the next big sector. This is going to be huge. So if you're at the start of your career, and even if you're in, in the middle of your career, starting to look at how, what you can be doing in this space is a very uh, is going to be very fruitful for you and and incredibly rewarding, right? Because you both it's both going to be a huge sector and you're going to do really cool stuff for the world. Just seeing the time, there's so much more I want to cover, but I know I know you've got to run off. So we'll finish with uh, one last question. Okay, what is the biggest thing stopping these climate tech companies scaling today? Funding, funding. Yeah. There's a funding gap. Funding is such a funding gap. Like so, VC, few VCs understand it, um, and it can take time to scale. Yeah. So, funding is the big one. So, um, so, so how, how, what do we? What does the funding need to change to? Well, I think the funding needs to change in terms of more VCs getting into it and understanding it and understanding what they're investing in. So we need we basically just need more funding structure that properly understands yep. this market, right, to a yep. degree, which is something we're going to try and fix, right? 100%, man. Fred, that's also, I, 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 right. I know you've got to run off, so I don't want to hold you. I can't even tell you how that was about 1%. Of the, we haven't scratched the surface of the questions I, know, I, really, I had to yeah. answer. So, do it again. So, so n- normally we say to the guests, got to have a round part two. We have to need around about 10 because there's so, there's so much more I want to dig into the Spotify stuff, the series stuff, the Spark Lab stuff, the telecom stuff. But we'll, we'll leave it for another time because I think that was a good episode thanks so much um, that was awesome and um, yeah cheers Harry it's just always good to chat man yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome thanks man cool good